Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Elul Learning Series. This is session three of what is now a four-session series, which does not in any way suggest that we're going to be comprehensive here and get through uh, anything more than a taste of the Rambam's approach to the laws of tshuva, right? You would, you would, you would need a, a semester of daily study to work through it systematically. What I wanted to do is to uh, introduce it to you, introduce the way the Rambam thought about law and how law applied to this psycho-spiritual notion of tshuva, and then see some of the specifics. So um, I'm going to both share my screen and you can also open it up based on the link. And if someone comes to the class late and has, doesn't have the, can't see the chat, then we will um, we'll post it again. So let me share my screen. Is that not working? There it is. Okay. Sorry about that. So uh, two weeks ago, we did a basic intro to the Mishneh Torah and talked about the placement of why Hilchot Shuva is where it is. It's in sort of the pre-halachic section of a very halachic book, um, and it's very intentionally not put in the laws of Yamim Nuraim to suggest that this is not a seasonal obligation. This is a ongoing, um, supererogatory, overarching obligation. And then we looked at the first um, halacha, where he talks about the, the obligation of a verbal vidui and how significant it is to actually articulate to yourself and to God and to whoever's uh, listening, if it's a personal confessional, what you did wrong. And we spoke about the magic and the wonder of specificity, both of praise and of contrition, right? The difference between I'm sorry and the difference between that and saying, I'm sorry that I said these words to you and I know that they caused you pain. Right? There is a, a massive difference whether the recipient of that is a loved one, a friend, or, as it were, the holy one, right? which is why so much of our liturgy in the Yemim Nareem is both like scripted, so it's not specifically a representation of our sins, but it's articulated. Right? We, that we, when we get to that part of Yom Kippur, we don't say, close your eyes and feel sorry. We say, make your lips form words that are very specific in terms of the ways that a Jew, Jew can sin. Okay, um, and then we spoke about um, how this was the case even in the sacrificial uh, era. That even if you're living in an era where you could achieve atonement through sacrifices, they would have meant nothing had they not been um, included along with a verbal vidui. Okay, uh, and that brings us to the third halacha of the first chapter. I think we did not start this, so let me jump jump right into it. Okay, and we're going to learn this halacha, and then we're going to learn some of the sources from the Talmud that informed the uh, the Rambam's writing here. The Rambam, it's interesting, but it, it's a masterpiece of a work, but he doesn't make a whole lot up, right? He's culling through the entire Talmudic system and the Midrashic system, uh, and he's coming up with his organized set of rules, but it's not like he's just pontificating on what a Jew should do. He's based on Talmudic sources, Okay. So we skipped the second halacha. Now we're in chapter one, halacha three. Bizman hazeh, at this time, and with this time for the Rambam is the 12th century. She'ein beit ha-migdash kayam, that we have no temple. And we discussed before how the Rambam writes his, his, his book, both vis-a-vis 
those laws that obtain with a temple and without a temple. But now he's saying, since there's no temple, um, and we don't have an altar on which atonement can be achieved. The only thing we have is tshuva. So when the temple stood, we had, we had two individually um, obligatory but insufficient things to get us to tshuva. You had the sacrifice and then you had the articulation of tshuva. Now, and, you, and, and one without the other was not enough. Now that we've lost one, right? It's not to say that, um, uh, that you only get half tshuva without the sacrifice. Remember the Rambam, um, I, I don't remember if I said it in this class, I've said it in other classes, the Rambam always thought of the sacrificial system as sort of a um, transitional object for the Israelites to wean them off idolatry. So he, 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 doesn't, he mourns the temple, but he doesn't necessarily mourn the sacrificial system. So now that the sacrificial system is gone, the only way you can get a kapara is tshuva. Right, so it's almost to be saying on Yom Kippur, the only thing that actually makes Yom Kippur Yom Kippur is not Yom Kippur. The only thing that makes Yom Kippur the back then Yom Kippur made Yom Kippur because the sacrifices plus your tshuva. Now that we ha- don't have the sacrifices, Yom Kippur is not Yom Kippur because you went to Shul on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is Yom Kippur if you've done tshuva. Hatshuva mechaperet al kol haaverot. Tshuva brings atonement for every one of your transgressions. Now, this is the part that we're going to linger on because it's fascinating and I'm going to read it. I want to hear your initial thoughts on it and then we'll look at some of the back sources. Imagine a person who was rasha, evil, wicked, sinful, his or her entire life. And did shuva at the very end when the rabbi was around the bed and saying, we're going to be doing the vidui. That's the same word. The words that you say uh, when someone is dying is vidui, this this confessional for what you wish you had done differently in life. You do not, you never remind that person a single thing from that person's era of wickedness. He brings a verse from the verse book of Yechezkel, Ezekiel chapter 33, 12. You see how it's the, it's the, uh, the, the gerund and the noun are the same root here. The evil of the evil the evil things that an evil person does, such a wicked person will not fail within it, will not stumble in it. Ezekiel prophesied that on the day that even a rasha, a wicked person, does tshuva, he no longer, she no longer is weighed down, anchored, or blackened by the previous evil. Uh, some people read this text and find it to be like bizarrely Christological, but then you could ask the question, maybe Chris, maybe the Christological notions emerge from a Jewish notion, right? This notion of, of uh, you know, accepting Jesus at any part of, part of your life, even at the very end, brings you um, uh, a, a full portion of the Christian notion of the world to come, right? No matter what you've done until now, simply confess your sins. You know, it's very... Um, uh, inquisitional in some ways. Confess your sins and then all will be well, right? He's saying this is a halakhic notion. No matter what kind of rasha you were the entire day, the entire life, if you do tshuva at the end, nothing that you did before can be mentioned to you, halakhically. The civil courts might have something to say about that, but halakhically, you're clean. Whenever I think of this um, uh, halakha, I think about the very poignant and powerful scene in the movie Dead Man Walking with uh, Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn, right? This the uh, the character played by Sean Penn 
who's guilty, clearly guilty of a horrific, horrific rape and murder. He's on death row. Um, and Susan Sarandon is some kind of, a, she, she's a nun of some order and she's assigned to his case. And uh, it's, it's a powerful movie. And what the, the, the basic premise is that she cannot save him from the death penalty, nor does she think he doesn't deserve it. We don't, we don't really know for sure, but it, it's not about whether or not the state has a right to execute him. That's an interesting question on the other side. The, que- the question is, before he dies, can she get him to say and mean significant for contrition for the awfulness of what he did? And what's implied in the movie is that from her theological perspective, if he does that and it's real, he's still going to die. And the sin is still horrific, but his soul is okay. And he will be with God. I, I struggle with that movie. I'm compelled by that movie. I'm struggled by the, with the idea. I'm compelled by the idea. The Rambam is saying something close to that. I've been quoting Ezekiel. Let's finish this par- par- paragraph. And I want to hear your thoughts on it. And the very day of Yom Kippur, the day itself, um, it, it's only... It's, it's read as brings atonement for those who return, but it really means brings atonement for only those who return. The actual day of Yom Kippur brings atonement only for Shavim, only those who have already done Shuvah. As it says in the book of Ayukra, to understand how he's using the verse, you have to go into a little longer conversation that we're not going to do, but basically a verse from Acharemot uh, that basically says that on that day, you will bring it, you will achieve atonement, but only if you've done what you needed to do until before that. Okay, let's pause here. What are some people's initial reactions, religious, emotional, psychological, with this um, Maimonidean idea that he's pulling from sources, that you can be a wicked person your entire life if you do significant shuva at the end? You, it's still the case that you've done the wickedness, but you're never, you're clean. You're never allowed to be you know, taunted with. Remember when you used to be a wicked guy? It's as if you've been reborn, which again is oddly Christological. Renee and then Denise? I mean, I, I think the idea of it is nice, but I can't picture, for instance, uh, somebody who commits murder being forgiven just because he said he was sorry. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it depends, the punishment has, the, it depends on the crime, the ones that they forgive. And it depends on the sincerity of the person doing the chuba and what the chuba actually is. Because mm-hmm. like I said, just saying, I'm sorry, I murdered somebody is just doesn't cut it for me, right. psychologically or otherwise. Right. And I think, by the way, the Rambam would say that the kind of chuba he's talking about goes way beyond the words, I'm sorry, right? Um, and I don't think he's saying that because the person did chuba, they're no longer subject to the punishment that the sin required. What he's saying is, as it were, as if he could speak for God, in the in the in the in the celestial realm, he that person has achieved what is required to achieve, and now can move from this point forward with the 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 slate wiped a little bit clean. That's what kapara is, a slate wiped clean. Denise. So it seems like, um, in a way, it seems like it almost doesn't line up with some of the other things we know about Rambam and Chuba in terms of like, you have to be really specific and you have to not only be really specific about what you did wrong, 
but you have to have a plan that you articulate for how you're not going to do it again. And like, it's not enough to say, oh, I'm sorry, I ate your lunch every day. It has to be like, I'm sorry, I ate your lunch every day. And I'm going to make you a lunch and I'm going to eat enough before I leave the house that I'm not hungry and tempted to steal other people's food and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, this doesn't seem on the surface, it doesn't seem like this aligns with that. But then I think like the only way that I can imagine it aligns with that is if the person is basically saying, I accept that I'm going to be killed. And that's the only way that I'm not going to do these things again. Like, I, I just don't know otherwise how it all lines up because he said both of those things. Right. So a couple of responses, then with a Carl and Michael. So number one, um, this concept in the Rambam applies both to major and minor sins. So it applies to sins where where the, the biblical system would have given you the death penalty. It also, you know, applies to having punched your friend when you shouldn't have punched your friend, right? And um, so it's easier to think about with the smaller sins, right? That we, we actually don't want it to be held accountable. Like, do I want every time that I have, you know, spoken the way I shouldn't have spoken to someone who's dear to me in the last year, assuming I've done proper contrition for it, do I want that hanging? Do I think it, 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 I deserve to have that hanging over my head? Or is it possible in the small ones to actually say, I've done Shuba. I shouldn't have done it originally, but I did it. I've done Shuba. And now don't, 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 don't remind me when I yelled at you. I, I did Shuba for that. I should have done it, but I did Shuba for that. So it makes sense in the smaller categories. You're right. It's harder to make sense of in the, uh, the, the larger transgressions that a human being can do that whose, whose sinfulness has a lasting impact on the other. The other thing I want to say is that the Rambam writes his text, again, similar to the way the Mishnah is written, which often begins with a general principle with the particulars to come afterwards. So he actually, we're only in the third halakha of, a, of, of an enormous book. He's going to get to all the specifics about how actually one achieves the full tshuva he's speaking about here. So he's not saying, if you say, hey, I've done tshuva, you're fine. He's saying, I want you readers to get, begin to understand that what you're about to read in tremendous detail about how actually one goes through tshuva, if you end up doing properly, what I'm, everything that I'm about to tell you have to do, then I want you to know that the system that I, the Rambam, believe in says it works and you can move forward from there. So we actually haven't gotten that detail yet. So it seems weird here that he just, he's saying it almost blithely. Do tshuva and you're fine. No, do the tshuva using every single step that I'm about to articulate. And I want you to believe that the process is operative. Last point, this might be evocative for some of you of of a section in the Talmud, which says that once a person uh, converts to Judaism, you may not remind them of their, uh, pre-Jewish status, right? It's considered a sin for a Jew to look askance on a non-Jew and say, remember when that mouth ate trafe, as it were, right? At that point, you, by reminding the, the, the once non-Jew of the things that they did that were kind of transgressive against the Jewish people before they became a Jew, you, the Jew, are the sinner in that situation, right? When someone crosses a, a, a spiritual threshold, the tradition believes that they actually have crossed it. It's as if the tradition is against grudge bearing, right? Which is a very hard human thing to, 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 to do, right? But that notion that when we bear a grudge, we let, we allow, we give other, someone else free real estate in our psyche, 
right? We give them real estate without rent at our psyche. The Rambam says, if the tshuva is real, just as if the conversion is real, it's real. And now you start from that point forward. Carl, Michael, and then Joanna. Okay, uh, two questions, I guess, occurred to me about this. The first is, uh, the, the premise is, if you've completed tshuva properly, then we shouldn't remind you of it in the past. But does the completing tshuva properly include the making restitution for the wrongs that you committed? It's going to be a lot easier to forgive and not remind somebody if they made restitution than if they haven't yet. Right. Uh, And then the second one is, okay, suppose there's a relapse and whatever the bad action we said they were not going to do again does happen again. And then obviously it wasn't quite a hundred percent successful to tshuva and maybe it's appropriate to remind somebody about that. Good. On your second point, the Rambam would say, well played and would say, um, right. That's that, you know, that, 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 what's that, that notion that the only way to know if a pearl is real is if you drop it in vinegar and it disappears and it would, then it was a pearl, right? So the only way to know that the tshuva was real was if that sin never repeats itself and the sin repeats itself, then by de- definition, the tshuva wasn't tshuva gmura. He keeps using this phrase. We haven't gotten to it yet because we're just in the first two paragraphs. Tshuva gmura, complete tshuva, complete tshuva, which frankly, very few of us ever do for nearly any of the sins that we are responsible for. Uh, means never actually being in a situation where you could be claimed to be guilty of it again. In terms of the first one, the, Ra- the Ramam does indeed speak about restitution, particularly for financial crimes, and he's just still here in the general principle, and that's why that those details which are coming to mind are important to think about. He just hasn't gotten there yet. Michael? Uh, you're, you're muted, Michael. There you go. Oh, nope, still muted. There you are. Sorry. I appreciate what you said and recall something that I learned uh, about, um, you know, going back to what the Rambam says at the beginning. Now we only have tshuva. We don't have the sacrifices and that the world is built on tshuva. And so everybody, in a sense, has a second chance. I mean, albeit if somebody keeps making the same mistake. Okay, that's a that's a a problem. And then also, I seem to remember something I learned uh, about um, one who does tshuva. There is something in the Talmud uh, or Mishnah. Someone who does uh, tshuva is considered to be higher than the sages, in a sense. Uh, or um, maybe you can clarify that. Maybe I'm not stating it. Correctly. Yeah. There, there are several versions of that concept. There's a this concept that says that 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 in some ways the spiritual plane of the person who sinned sin A and did shuva for sin A is higher than the person who never did sin A, right? Like any individual sin, right? Because the notion is that if you've if you've confronted a depth of your character and effaced it, in some ways you're in the exact same place as the person who never had that deficit. In some ways. Because we believe in the process and the process being illuminating and, and, and ennobling, you're not that it's a competition, but you're, you're you're a more improved human 
you needed the improvement, but therefore you're a more refined human being. Right? And this approach, as, as Michael was alluding to, it's the, the notion that someone who did something awful, did serious tshuva, and is now to be considered not as if they never did it, but as if they, they transcended it, in some ways is very brutalist, in some ways is very optimistic. It's brutalist vis-a-vis the person who is wronged, right? I mean, our, our headlines are filled every day with, with um, very sympathetic victims who are upset that, that no, 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 however long a prison sentence is for someone who did something awful to the victim, it's not long enough. We can understand that. It's just not long enough. Right. Um, you know, we've all, we've all been there in different ways. You know, uh, the one that comes to mind is when, you know, you know, p- p- terrorists who've killed innocent Israelis are let out of prison before they're supposed to, right. It's, it's, it's not long enough as if an extra three years would have done something tremendously different. Right. But it's also very hopeful in the sense that the system believes that the human being can climb up from wickedness. And if they climb up from wickedness, whether situational wickedness or grand wickedness, and if they really do, then we say to them, the world is available to you. And so is the community. And so is life. So it's, it's a, it's a contrast um, that the Rambam is playing, putting out here in really very few words. We're expanding on it so much more, and I think we're expanding on it properly, but it's a really interesting contrast in terms of its understanding of, of the human condition. Let's hear Joanna and Rebecca, and then I want to uh, learn a piece of Talmud with you, which is the source from where uh, the source from which Rambam derives this halacha. Joanna. Um, so there's a bunch of thoughts um, floating through my mind. Um, one is, you know, when you were mentioning that, you know, this really starts as a general and then focuses down up to the specific. There's a piece of me, and maybe because it is because the specific makes us so uncomfortable, that wants to broaden back out to the general again. And the question that I'm asking myself alongside that is, who is this teaching addressed to, right? Because the teaching doesn't say to the you. If you were bad all of your life and you did evil things all your days and you repent, you know, you're okay, So to me, this reads as this is being addressed to all of us, because none of us, of course, are that such evil person who is observing this in the world. And therefore, if it's addressed to, you know, most of us who are somewhere in the middle, um, what's the message there? And I think the message there is sometimes the world can seem very dark and hold out hope for everyone. Um. And this reminds me a little bit, as as we were reading through this, I had a flashback to a memory of, I think, somewhere in my teenage years, where um, during the break on Yom Kippur, I, there was a very respected, learned member of the community that, I mean, it just happened that as I was kind of walking about past him and turned to him and said, Gemar Chatima Tova. And he said to me, you shouldn't actually say that to anyone on Yom Kippur. And I said, what do you mean? I always learned that this was the greeting, the greeting for this one day for Yom Kippur. And he taught me that it's really a greeting for a Sarata because all of everyone who is super righteous, their fate is sealed on, on Rosh Hashanah. All of the super wicked, their fate is sealed on Yom Kippur. And all of us in the, uh, who are in the middle, 
are decided in the middle days. So to say Gemar Chatimah to someone on Yom Kippur is to say to them, in essence, that they are like a super wicked person. And there's something quite beautiful in that teaching of like, holding out hope that, you know, we're kind of all in this in the collective somewhere in the middle. And let's hold out hope for humanity. Right. Lovely. So I'm not going to wish you Gemar Chatimatova on Yom Kippur because I figure, I figure you already finished your tshuva process, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to praise you by not greeting you in that way. I love that. Wonderful. Rebecca. Um, I, I, my reaction to this, um, to, the, to this uh, part is is that it feels like it's almost too easy in that I I always think I think probably from school days I think of Yom Kippur as like a, a day in court and um, it's a little bit it's always difficult to prove in court that you didn't do something and so it feels like there's more of an effort on the people who haven't done something clearly evil to figure out what they did wrong and whether they did wrong or not. And while it seems almost easier to just say, yeah, I screwed up and I'll try not to do it again and move on. So I feel like the process for like a, for, for a really black and white wrongdoing seems almost easier than for something in the middle. Like, yeah. you know, like proving, you know, proving that you, in Hebrew you say, you know, prove that you, you know, you don't have that sister or, or that did something or, or, so it just seems a little bit too light on that balance. Yeah. Thanks, Rick. I heard most of those words, the sound went in and out, so I may have missed um, just a, a few of the nuances. I, I, it, it's echoing what someone said before. I think it was Carl, maybe it was someone else that, you know, is it as easy as the Rambam is suggesting here? And I, I, I give a similar response is if one, the question is, would one think that when once one finished the entire Hilchot Shuvah, right? He's, he's setting up general principles and then he's going to walk you through the steps. But I recognize why it seems facile. It, it, um, I don't think he means it that way, but I recognize how it comes off. Let's leave the Rambam for a moment and study some Talmud together because the Rambam is basing this particular notion of a wicked person who did shuva no longer being able to be reminded of their wickedness from an, a, a, like a, a medium-sized chunk of Talmud in Kiddushin. Uh, I also want to pause and say it's interesting to see how um, the camera deals with um, the fan because, Michael, the fan behind your head is so interesting it's cle- we're clearly seeing it differently than it is. It has something to do with like, you know, how many frames per second you're seeing it. Um, so it, it, it looks like the, at least for my camera, it looks like the fan is like chick, 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 like a sprinkler, but clearly it's not what it's doing. So the technology is interesting. Okay. 40th um, um, page of Kiddushin. In Texas, um, in Texas you, you need a fan. <laughs> yes. Um, th- th- there's an interesting, just random Adam Klickfeld coincidence about this page. Um, some of you know that I did not go to day school growing up. I had a good, you know, Jewish life and culture background from Ramah USY, and I knew Hebrew. We went to Israel a lot. I was studying Jewish history in college, but I had never studied text. I never studied Rashi or Talmud or anything like that. And I took a semester in college and went to yeshiva uh, to harness my Hebrew, Hebrew skills and learn how to study text. Rabbi, please yeah. feel talking. I think someone's unmuted. Um, and... Um, 
Okay. And uh, the way it, the way it works in the yeshiva that I went to, and it's probably very common, is that you kind of come when you come. It does, it's not like a big, you know the session begins on a particular day. You just come and and join a shiur. And um, there's something called the Hamasechet Hanil Medet, the, the tractate of Talmud that's being studied. And that year, in the yeshiva that I went to, the tractate of study Talmud being studied on different levels by different people based on your skill level was Masechet Kiddushin. Um, and I got there. Um, and we started on, on page 28 or 29, which deals with the laws of, um, uh, the, the, the obligations that a, uh, a child has towards a parent and a parent has towards a child. We spent a few days on that and then we jumped to the section. So by, by, by random, uh, randomness, this is the second section of Talmud I ever studied in my life back in 1994. Okay. Uh, Yireh Adam Atzmo, sorry, Yireh Adam Atzmo. A person should see himself or himself as if half of that person were chayav. Chayav here means uh, obligated in the sense of um, your your um, your negative your, your negative qualities, the things that you owe society. Chayav can mean you're obligated to do a certain thing in a halachic situation. It also means the opposite of being. Uh, of being good and being positive. Uh, when you go, when you go to a Beit Din, right? The Beit Din might obligate you to a payment or restitution or might basically say you're the victor in the case. So you should see yourself as if half of you is chayav, half of you is owing, half of you is owed, half of you is fine, right? Think of yourself in perpetual 50-50. I'm half good, I'm half rotten, right? I'm half laden with mitzvot, and half laden down with a mitzvot that I did not do. Asa mitzvah achat, if you do one mitzvah, ashrav, go you, happy are you, shehichriya atzmo lechap zuchut, because you have moved the dial to kaf zuchut. Now, what's the image here? The image is the balance, right? Uh, like as in, as in weights, right? Remember back then, that's actually how they, you know, doled out, um, you know, money. They would put the, the amount of corn or wheat, whatever, on this side, and the amount of um, metal on the other side, and that's how they determined if it was the right amount. Um, and this might be ev- um, evocative for you of the Mishnaic idea that you're supposed to judge everybody favorably. Don le kabschut, don some, judge someone as if the um, the weight is in their favor. So, what happens with the balance if something is perfectly balanced? If you put a grain of sand on one side of it, it's Imbalanced. And all you needed to be, according to the Rambam, is a little bit balanced towards Chayav. Sorry, Zakai. A little bit balanced towards the good. So I want, the Rambam wants to say kind of what, 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 whatever your status is. And maybe here he's speaking to something that Joanna was saying before, that very few of us are Lamed Vavnikim, perfect souls. And very few of us are wretchedly wicked, wicked who commit murder, idolatry, and incest, right? Most of us are walking along, trying to get through our days, doing mitzvot, stumbling, making mistakes. Therefore, you should force yourself or allow yourself to see yourself in a perpetual state of perfect balance, which means that the next mitzvah I do, it's a little bit chabadish, the next mitzvah I do might tip my balance towards zakai. So why wouldn't I... Why wouldn't I do it then? Avar avera echat. But think of yourself. He's not saying this 
dispositively in the sense that that's actually happening in the cosmic system. Think of yourself this way. Yireh Adam. Think of yourself as if the next Avera that I do, the next transaction that I do, by the way, this, I, this is not the Rambam, this is the Talmud, the next uh, transgression that I do, Oilo, the opposite of Ashrav, like Oi to you, Shehichriya et atzmo lakaf chuba, because you have switched the balance towards your being an Oer in the world. Shinemar, we have it from the book of Kohel, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. One sin, the person who sins once destroys much good. Because of that one little sin, you couldn't hold yourself back. You couldn't resist that one sin that you did, you ovated, ovated, you lost, you destroyed from yourself to vote harbeth, all of the beautiful things you've done beforehand. This is an, it, like, this is, you'll get, we'll, we'll get eventually to the specific words that the Rambam is basing his law on. But in some ways, it's the mirror image of the law above. The law above said, you're a, a wicked person your entire life, you do tshuva, and it's real. This one says, imagine yourself that the next sin that you do will cancel out or make people forget about or have you lose the status of the generally good person you were beforehand. A lot at stake in this motion, in this moment. And what moment is that? Every moment. He quotes this verse from Kohelet. I wanted to bring you the commentary of Rashi on the verse in Kohelet. Remember that Rashi has a line-by-line commentary on every verse in the, in the Tanakh. Sometimes he skips a verse here and there. And he also has a line-by-line commentary on every line in the Talmud. This is not Rashi's commentary on the Talmud. This is Rashi's commentary on the verse from Kohelet. So what's the verse from Kohelet? It's in bold here. The person who does one sin or one sinner uh, destroys much good. What does Rashi say? Imagine, Rashi says, if all of Israel were half filled with righteous people and half filled with wicked people, along comes some, another person and sins, and makes the sinners the greater category amongst the Israelites, the Jews, than the non-sinners. Rashi quoting the verse says, this is not just about your individual constitution, but this is actually the perpetual status of the Jewish people. There are Jews, we know them to be the case, that are very, very focused not only on their own works and deeds, but on others. We would call them sanctimonious and filled with hubris and, and, uh, and filled with too much certainty that they know what God's um, will is, right? And, and, you, and, you, and you see it, the farther you go into the, you know, the right-wing expression of Judaism. Rashi would say on some level, yeah, I have to be um, focused not only on my own deeds, but on yours, because you might be the one who's going to tip the balance of the Jewish people towards the Messianic era or away from the Messianic era. I'm both kind of disturbed and compelled by that idea. I'm compelled by the idea of considering the urgency of our deeds, because I think sometimes we sleepwalk through mitzvot and we sleepwalk through life. I'm disturbed by the notion that the balance of all humanity 
is weighing on my next act. But there's something about it that focuses my attention on doing it the right way versus the wrong way. And Rashi's commentary on Kohelet also finds its expression in the Talmud itself in the continuation of that text. Let me pause here and see if there are any questions or comments before we go back to the Talmud. I didn't see that I wasn't able to read the chats. Correct. Very good, Joanna, about the two, the, the two pockets. Yes. Great. Thank you, Michael. All right, let's go back to the Talmud. So uh, we jumped out of the Talmud to look at Rashi's commentary on the verse from Kohelet. And now this is the continuation of that um, passage in Kiddushin, chapter 40. Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon said, Right now that we remember the Talmud's previous statement was that every individual should see themselves uh, as the next sin or the next mitzvah as being the one that determines their fate or their status. The Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Shimon, kind of evoking what Rashi is going to say about 800 years after this, that the whole world, since the whole world is judged based on its majority, meaning the majority of the world's deeds, the Hayachid Nidon Acharubo, and the individual is judged by its majority. Asa mitzvah achat ashrav. If you did, did one mitzvah, go you, ye you. Shehichriya et atmo ve'et kol haolam lekav zechut. So Rabbi Elazar Shimon expands the previous line, which was just our own personal ledger. Your personal ledger might put you and everyone back into the realm of zechut, of being deserving. Avar avera achat. The next, you know, the next trafe you eat, the next violation of Shabbat that you do, the next thing that you steal when no one's looking. Oilo, what was to you? Not only Shehichriya etatzmo, that you um, p- push yourself over the line, but Vietkol Haolam Lekaf Chova. You might be the one who pushed the whole world, it's probably thinking of the whole Jewish world towards wickedness. Shene Amar, quoting from the same verse in Kohelet, the Chote Echad Yabed Tova Harbe. Because of one measly sin, you thought it was a nothing. You thought it was a zero. There is no such thing as a zero in this rabbinic theology. Everything is a thing that can turn your own reality and the world's reality to the negative. You lost for yourself and for the whole world much goodness. A third teaching, right in a row, on Masach Kiddushin. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai Omer, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, uh, famous sage, Lagba Omer, etc. Afilu tzaddik gamur kol yamav. Even if you were the most righteous dude your entire life, this is not going to be the one that brings us back to the Rambam's teaching. Umarad ba'achrona. At the last second, you said, "This was ridiculous. I lived my life with restraint. I gave up hedonistic pleasures. I gave up the things I really wanted to do for some." you know, some imaginary God in the sky, you go through a rebellion at the very end of your life, you lost all of your righteousness. This is the flip of the thing that the Rambam brings. The Rambam doesn't bring this one. This is the flip of it. You lost all of the, 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 the chips that you had gained from your righteousness. Quoting the same chapter of Ezekiel, but just earlier on, Sidkat HaTzadik, the righteousness of the righteous person, lo tatsilenu, will not save that person, biyom pisho, or yom posho, on the day of his transgression. And now we get the one that the Rambam is basing his teaching on. Let's say you are a complete scoundrel your entire life. 
tshuva ba'achrona. I need the tshuva at the very end. This is going to sound almost exactly like what the Rambam said. Ein maskirin lo shuv risho. You, the, the, the person observing that, are never allowed to mention to that person or taunt that person of his previous wickedness. Shinemar, as it says in this next verse, The wickedness of the wicked person will not make them stumble on the day that he turns. The reason why you just see this is that I wanted you to see it as a, the third piece of a three-part rabbinic theology that suggests that individual um, uh, actions matter enormously to your ledger they matter enormously to the world's ledger. And therefore, it might flow more logically that since the, pa- the power of the next deed is so powerful, it may even be able to reverse in either direction your entire kind of spiritual life story up until that point. Um, and the Rambam lifts just the second part of part three and throws it into his Hilchotshuva. It's interesting to ask why he doesn't um, um, in, include, at least not in this section, the first part of part three that says, even if you were um, uh, righteous your entire life, one sin will will turn it all around. Okay, let me pause here and see if there are thoughts or comments because we're almost at the end of our time. And um, I still haven't decided of, of the, of, of, of the in, enormously good material coming up, which is the one I'm going to focus on our last class next week. And of course, if there's interest, we can do this more after the high holidays. Uh, but thoughts, comments, reactions to uh, what we just saw in the Talmud or, uh, or the Rashi or what it says about the Rambam's text. Going once. Rebecca. I hope you can hear me now. I'm not sure why the sound wasn't good. But um, my initial reaction to the, the parts from the Talmud was that I really... I really don't like that. It goes against everything I try to tell myself, everything I try to tell my kids. You know, you do your homework all semester and then you screw up once. The teacher will accept that. If, if you know, that shouldn't color everything. Um, but then um, when I look at this last sentence, I kind of interpret that as maybe it's, being seen as all this time before you were a rasha, but when you return, that day that you return, you're actually starting a new life as a non-rasha. And so in that respect, it could be that you're looking at a turning point. So if you were good all this time, but now you're you're um, rebelling and you're actually really going away from what's right, then what you did well initially doesn't count. Um, Maybe not so much that it's one deed, but that it's the beginning of sort of a new bad phase or a new good phase. That's right. how I to interpret it. That, that's a wonderful interpretation. A cousin to that interpretation is that not only is the beginning of something new, bad or good, that it might be representative of what you always were, but were obscured by poor decision-making or, or, or playing a part, right? So it might also the Talmud's way of saying, if if you did true tshuva at the end, maybe you were, maybe deep inside of you was the good person. You just, you, you, you hadn't found it yet, right? And we're, we're, we're going to trust that now that you found it, that's actually going to be the truer you and we're going to judge you based on you. And the reverse. Now, if, 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 you, if you played the part of a righteous person, 
and threw it all away at the end. And again, we can think of righteousness here as like interpersonal righteousness or even religious righteousness. Maybe you weren't such a tzaddik. Maybe you were just trying to impress. Maybe you, maybe you were parlaying your righteousness into access. Who knows? Maybe, maybe this is the truer you, right? So it really is an interesting study on the Talmud's study of what human character is and how malleable and, and which, and which expression of what a person does should be taken seriously, right? Uh, I, I'll, 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 I'll go on a slight tangent and then we'll end the, end the class. Uh, let me try to anonymize this as best as possible. Um, this is some, somewhat recently I've, I, I learned of a, of a colleague um, who, I, who I know pretty well, not a close friend, who has lived, from what I can tell, um, and maybe the things I don't know, a pretty upstanding, exemplary, uh, wonderful, personal, family-based, and rabbinic life. And then um, uh, was was um, a, a, a accused and arrested for um, doing something that is inexcusable. And those of us who know this person are trying to ask ourselves, well, which, which is the person? Is the person the 45 years that, we, that some of us have known him less time of, of goodness and honesty and tenderness and sweetness? Or is the person the one act which cannot be defended? And apparently it's one act that seems to undermine all that. Is a person maybe more complex than we think? Do we, do, we have, do we have demons lurking that sometimes they break through the epidermis of the, of the character? And if they break through the epidermis of the character and come out and we have to pay the price for it, does that mean we are now that person? Or are we the person who actually has successfully kept our, our urges, um, which we all have, in check? And, and this is the exception that proves the rule. And it's really hard to figure out. And the law has a different way of responding to it than the, than, than, than the community, right? So the law might have something very specific to say about that deed. Right. And we, and Dina de Machuta Dina, we live in a, in a society of law. So if the law says that for that deed, it doesn't matter if the person had, you know, you know, righteousness the previous decades, that deed has to be paid for. But how are we supposed to think of who that person is now? Or should we be imagining that a person is unimaginably complex? And I think the Talmud in some ways, it like, sometimes it, it's, it's hard to remember that the Talmud was written by real people observing real people. And while culture and society were different back then, they were really walking through the streets of Jerusalem or Babylonia and Sur and Pampadita, and they were really tempted to steal, and they were really getting into bad moods, and they were really uh, wondering if the laws that they were being asked to observe for Shabbat and Pesach were really that significant. And and this and and the rabbinic system was observing all this and trying to figure out what is, what is a human being, and how are we supposed to understand a human being's behaviors, and and how should we predict the next thing a human being is going to do based on the previous 10 or a hundred or a thousand things they did. And we still haven't figured it out completely. So I think this is the text trying to reckon with the complexity of a flawed soul, which we all are in possession of. Joanna, you get the final comment of the morning. My final comment of the morning is I want to quote Rabbi Klickfeld back to Rabbi Klickfeld from a completely different context. And it's funny because I quoted something that you said um, in an LL teaching with this very thing in an LL teaching with Rabbi Schatz and on also some study that I was doing away from Beth Am. And it's an image, obviously. You that study is away back. from Beth Am? Joanna, <laughs> how dare you? 
<laughs> Go ahead, sorry. Um, and it's an image for some reason that's deeply resonating with me this high holiday season. And I don't even remember the sermon and the context of it, but you were talking about binaries and how we tend to think of binaries as opposite ends of a straight line and put those binaries on a string and now curve that string and make those two ends touch. And, you know, because things that we seemingly on the surface seem to think of as so far apart from each other, maybe are not quite as far as part as we think. And there's just like the tiniest, thinnest sliver of a line that divides them. Yeah. That image I first heard from my dear friend and teacher, Rabbi Jack Moline, who sometimes watches me on Facebook. So if you're watching Rabbi Moline, that's you. Um, yeah, and it's it's a phenomenal image. I think it's a much better way of seeing polarity, or or at least some polarities in life, right? The you know the the difference between the distance between madness and genius, the distance between laughter and tears, and the dif- the distance perhaps between a righteous life and a wicked moment, right? They might they actually might be, you know kissing cousins on some level, even though they're the opposite ends of the characterological spectrum. And it's humbling to think about, right? Because woe, to, to, to paraphrase the Talmud, woe to us if we think we're not capable of such a turnaround uh, in either direction, by the way, right? So we're, we're capable of enormous turnaround for the good. And, you know, some, we're, we're not that many steps away from what could push someone to turn around for the negative. Um, and I think it's important and humbling to remember this season as we're supposed to be considering our character and our deeds. So let me end here with you, Shabbat Shalom. And to be um, aware of the people around us and and flaws that they might have that we can help catch prior to them escalating to the point where yeah. I mean, I mean it becomes a negativity. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.